Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today for another episode. Devin, what have you been up to? Oh, you know me. I've been uh, looking at Black Magic Switchers, uh, trying to work on building out a new studio configuration, and the client wants 4K. And for that price, the Black Magic Switchers are very attractive. So I've been lining up to test some of those suckers out, as well as doing research on their capabilities in a live production environment. How many cameras are you going to set up on that? Uh, honestly, it's probably just going to be one. But occasionally, if they decide to actually build a new set, it'll move up to three or four cameras. Nice. I've seen a few of the uh, HDMI switchers set up on cheap Canon cameras. Have you ever tried any of that? No, I try to avoid HDMI switching like the plague. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, we've currently been using uh, TriCaster. Yeah. Uh, with HD SDI and a bunch of uh, Panasonic's, uh, not HMC 150s, HPX's 170s, okay. something like that. So, and the TriCaster, it's a Windows 7 computer that's running, you know, their software for switching and everything else. And it works, right? We're, yeah. we're going back in time. Oh, Get man. the DeLorean. Yeah, that's my <laughs> cell phone ring for those of you wondering why the charm is. Obviously, I have forgotten to turn <laughs> this guy off, so good job to me for being on top of things. No, uh, one thing I wanted to point out before we get going on this, since this is the first video version, you guys are going to be seeing this on YouTube, is this has been a sort of ongoing podcast that I've been doing with Devin as well as Mitch from Planet 5D. And you can find this on iTunes. There'll be a link in the show notes below. It's also available on SoundCloud and wherever good podcasts are sold. Also, the show is on DSLRFilmNoob.com. You can check that out. And you can find Devin where? At ImpulseNetworks.tv. Awesome. Now with that, let's go ahead and move on to the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. There's been a lot of camera announcements, but one of the ones that's kind of caught my eye is the Olympus EM5 Mark II. This is a very interesting Micro Four Thirds camera, and I'm kind of on the fence about buying it. Its price tag is $1,099, and it looks like Olympus is finally starting to bring out some great video features. Initial reviews seem to be pretty decent, and this does have built-in 5-axis image stabilization, which is a pretty sweet thing to have inside the camera. That means any lens you get out of your kit will automatically have image stabilization, even those old adapted lenses that you could strap onto the camera with some sort of flange adapter. The... EM5 Mark II has a lot of cool video features and it's finally catching up with probably, what would you say, the GH3? It doesn't have 4K yet, but it does have a 16 megapixel sensor. Devin, what do you think about this camera? Uh, I think that this camera is very exciting. I think that Olympus knows that they need to get some video features in their cameras to uh, be considered in this marketplace, especially for mirrorless. Panasonic's been crushing it with the GH3 and GH4. And here, you're right. Uh, the video, the fact that 1080 at 30p is running uh, an all-intra codec at 77 megabits per second, that's pretty much GH3 territory in terms of the codec. Um, and I'm sure that they probably are using some kind of similar sensor because it is 16 megabit, though, as we discussed in the past episode, uh, you do get that multiple uh, exposure mode that gets you, you know, a theoretical 40 megabit. And that could be useful in some situations, but it's got the shutter speed of the GH3. If I recall, the GH3 is around 10 or 11, um, as well as though it does have a faster shutter 
So for photography nuts, that's great for them. Uh, while the 4K is lacking, I think that stabilization is the perfect thing, depending on how well it works in a video environment and everything else. And so far, everything I've seen looks fantastic. Everyone's always like, hey, get the GH3 or the GH4. You can put any lens you want on it. But sometimes without image stabilization, it means you're bringing in more gear for stability or what have you, your DJI Ronins and stuff like that. And in this situation, this is the next step. It's saying bring whatever lenses you want and we'll stabilize them too. And the stabilization here does not look like an iPhone or a cell phone stabilization. It looks properly like it feels like a heavier camera. It looks like you're using a bigger camera than you actually are. Now, a lot of the initial reviews kind of are complaining that it's only using a 77 megabit uh, Kodak. There's some complaints about how the GH3 wasn't nearly as sharp as the GH4 because it has the 200 and the 100 megabit Kodak. What do you think? Is is it going to really cripple people with uh, 77 megabit uh, Kodak? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think that. 70. Honestly, with it being all intraframe, uh, you got to keep in mind that it's a weird relationship because right all intraframe everyone thinks that that is the god of codex but a lower bit rate all intraframe is going to look much worse than a codec that is not all intraframe uh like motion jpeg needs a really high quality jpeg in order to look good otherwise mpeg2 will look way better depending on the situation and the scenario if you're out filming you know snow flying around uh, the all intra is going to look way better than, um, you know, a motion dependent JPEG. Uh, but that being said, I think 77 is right in the good range that you could really get what you need out of the all eye. The GH3 being soft, I think that has more to do with the lens, uh, the processing with the sensor. Yeah. And I, and I think that it has a little bit to do with settings too, because a lot of people forget that they dump their GH3 uh, sharpness all the way down in their video settings. Um, so, you know, the GH4 being that much sharper, I'm pretty convinced it's because of things that they're doing between the path of the sensor and the chip, and then also processing that the chip is doing as well. Uh, and honestly, from my taste, I think it's overly sharp. And codec, to me, doesn't really come into sharpness. Uh, codecs, to me, are important when you're talking about detail and motion, because even super low bitrate stuff, like out of the 5D, looks great when the 5D Mark II wasn't moving. And as soon as you start moving the 5D Mark II, the codec falls apart. So I wouldn't say sharpness really has anything to do here. It has to do with sharpness with motion. And the fact that they're offering an all intra frame at 77, I say that's about the right range. If you went lower than that, I'd be concerned about using an intra frame codec. I think you get better quality even out of an AVC or something like that. But in this case, I think they're right there, right around the money. The 60p at 50 megabits, that sounds to me like being almost worthless. I was kind of uh, wondering about that. Why, why are they using a 50 megabit codec for 1080 60p, but a nicer codec for 1080 30p and 24? P. I, I, that really comes like, down to it shows you the limitations of the hardware is what it is because uh, the all intra frame shows that you've got a large data channel coming in and then the chip is processing each frame individually instead of looking for motion and just processing that motion. So the 60p is not going to be all intra frame and it, either, it wasn't on the GH3 either. Uh, in this case though, so now you're very dependent on the motion that happens during that 60 frames a second. And I'm sure they're banking on people want to do slow-mo when stuff is standing still, but anyone who owns a GH4 and has tried the 96 uh, frames at, what's it's is that at 100? Mushy. Yeah, it's uh, 96 frames per second at 1080p. I don't believe they go that high yeah. on 
Yeah, and it's a hundred meg codec. If that's what you're asking. Yeah, um, yeah, a hundred meg codec. Sorry, you caught me so off guard. Um, I'm looking through the rundown, and just before we dive deeper into this camera, the, for those of you not familiar with the EM5 Mark II, uh, the specs list include a 60 megapixel Micro Four Thirds sensor, so you can use any of the Micro Four Thirds standard lenses. It has the 40 megapixel multi-exposure mode, which I'll have Devin explain in just a second. It shoots at 1080p, uh, 24 frames. 30 frames and 60 frames with the change in Kodak from the 60p to the 30p, and that's what we were talking about just a little bit ago. It has an internal five-axis image stabilization system that basically moves the sensor around inside the camera to stabilize motion as you move. It has 10 frames per second continuous shooting. It has a one eight thousandth of a second maximum shutter speed with an actual shutter, and then it has an electronic shutter that allows you to go to one sixteen thousandth of a second which means for photographers, you might not need an ND around anymore to shoot wide open. And it has built-in Wi-Fi and a couple of little clip-on accessories that allow you to have an IP-style um, viewfinder, I believe. Or No, this has the built-in uh, OLED mm-hmm. viewfinder, so that's not the case. I'm not sure. A bounce flash, I believe, is what the other accessory is. Now, we've explained this on a few podcasts, but since this is the first video podcast... Devin, why don't you go over that whole 40 megapixel extra exposure system? Sure. Um, just real quick. Crazy. crazy. <laughs> I don't want people to get uh, bored. Um, but uh, generally speaking, each pixel on your camera, while you say that you have you know 16 megapixels, uh, you have 16 megapixels that's actually combining four different subpixels. And the subpixels are all different colors, and that's how it combines them to create one color for that one pixel. So what this camera is doing instead is, because it does have the ability to move the sensor, it's shifting the sensor by a subpixel in a, f- a square pattern. The idea being is that for that subpixel area of light, it's actually capturing each different color, so it knows what color that subpixel should actually be instead of just representing as one color value that gets combined into 16 megapixels. So by slightly shifting the sensor around, it's able to pick up all that extra color data and that detailed data and then reprocess it all into one image. So of course it's going to, as of right now, it needs a tripod in order to be used, and I'm sure that because your exposure times are going to be lengthened. If it moves, anything moves at all, uh, you're probably going to see chromatic aberrations like you would on older lenses or lenses without coatings on them. So it'll be really interesting to see how people use that in the field because the pictures speak for themselves. They look sharp. They look brilliant. Uh, so it definitely looks like something handy to have in the tool bag, but I don't think that it's a feature that's required for photographers that, you know, if you don't have this, you're not considered a photographer kind of a thing as, as opposed to like FPS or your maximum shutter speed, things like that, that every photographer will use. Now, one of the things I'm excited about is the price on this. Uh, GH4 is still running in the 12 to $1,400 range. This Olympus camera is going to clock in at about $1,100. That's about $400 cheaper than the original retail of the GH4. Makes it pretty attractive. It doesn't have 4K, but for that price, I have a ton of Micro Four Thirds lenses right now, and it would be really easy to just slide this into my bag when I need to do handheld stuff. You mentioned that there's no rig required for this guy, and that's pretty sexy, you probably aren't going to be running around and sprinting with this sort of five-axis image stabilization, but you could probably get away with a lot of handheld. And I've been watching the videos. Let's see, there's one from uh, John Braley. Am I saying that correctly? 
he's got some video that he shot with that pre-production model, and he was able to basically walk around and shoot almost all handheld with very little tripod in any of the shoot. And I'll have the links in the show notes to that, but you should definitely check it out. He's moving around quite a bit, and for the most part, there aren't any obvious points where you're like, man, this is really handheld, crummy footage. It's just nice and smooth. So I think that's the biggest sell for me. All the rest of the features, like you know that 40 megapixel multi-exposure mode, they're kind of interesting, but they're not anything I'll ever really need. The one sixteen thousandths of a second, man, that's cool for shooting outdoors in sunlight. So mm-hmm. I am kind of excited about that. And I'm guessing silent shutter mode. So if you're doing some kind of, you know, creepy spy cam <laughs> stuff or you're like, you know, checking out that husband who's been cheating on his wife or something like that, this might be. Or you know what? It's also great, too, if you're uh, doing baby or uh, pet photography. That's true. Um, a lot of the times uh, the shutter can be intimidating, especially when you're getting really up close and stuff like that. So it being silent can really help uh, in those kind of situations as well. Now, rolling on down the news article line here, I've got the kind of controversial subject of the GTX 970. Uh, If you've picked up a GTX 970 in the last few months, it turns out that only about 3.5 gig out of the 4 gig frame buffer is actually operating at the full rated speed. Because of the way the buffer is configured on that GPU, the last 500 meg of frame buffer access is actually slowed down to a third or a quarter of what the rest of the access speed is. If you're using the Adobe Mercury playback engine in your editing uh, suite, uh, basically if you're a CC editor, then this is going to probably be a little bit of an issue for rendering because the Mercury playback engine does access that video RAM in order to buffer the frames as it's going through and using GPU processing to handle any effects in your timeline. Now, this isn't a huge issue, and it's not super dramatic, but at the same time, the R9 290X cards from um, Radeon are dropping down into the 240 and 250 range on Amazon's warehouse deals. OpenGL has come a long way. What do you think? Should people upgrade to the GTX 980, stick with their GTX 970, or if they're buying new, just go for the R9 290X? Well, that's that's a bit of a, a complicated answer. That's a bit of a loaded question. But yes, it uh, is. just to go over a few of the simple terms here, a lot of people compare CUDA cores to how fast something can render. And while that is partially true, that's not the end-all be-all. It's not like the megahertz on a processor. Hey, so much of this is proportional to what you get out of it. Um, and so the difference in terms of CUDA cores between the 970 and the 980 is not substantial, at least with what uh, Premiere is going to end up using. Understand, too, that there's a lot of limitations with CUDA right now. Premiere doesn't take full advantage of most of these graphic cards when it uses them. Memory is a big issue, and I can understand people being concerned about this, but... In my tests, I mean, uh, CS5, CS6 required 800 megabytes of memory at DDR3, and I've never seen my graphics card pulling in more than two gigs, even when I'm working with 4K footage. Um, It's one of those that there's usually going to be other slowdowns in the system before you end up with that. Now, I have seen some people who are working with like ProRes 4K footage that say, yes, you need to have more than four gigabytes. But this seems such a small number. Uh, A lot of the controversy that uh, 
you were speaking to has a lot to do with the fact that did NVIDIA know about this? Because this is a design problem. This isn't like uh, EVGA or PNY or some other company who made a bad card. This is about the what NVIDIA came out with and they advertised four gigabytes and it's not completely usable. That being said, that 0.5 gigabytes is not slow. Uh, a lot of people advertise that it's ridiculously slow compared to. Well, yeah, the but the memory. rest of the memory buffer is super fast. So slow is, is relative. It is super fast, but but that that last 500 megabytes uh, is about as fast as your system memory, which is a bit of a long trip for the graphics card to go out to the system and borrow the memory in order to use it for its frame buffer. Um, but. To me, this isn't a make, make or break deal. I mean, if you're on the fence, sure, it's a good reason to jump up just because you'll know that you'll have that full capability. But for me, uh, even in things like gaming, which is a much more extreme application of a graphics card than editing will ever be, just in the way that it uses the card at a low level, uh, you know, you could run uh, Battlefield 4 on all highs and super high quality, and even then, at uh, 2K, 2.5K resolution, you're only going to use 3.5 gigs. I mean, and that's really pushing the system. So, yeah, if you are in the market, maybe the price difference is not a big deal to you and you should jump up. Uh, this isn't something that can be fixed with firmware. This isn't really something that can be fixed anywhere else. This has to do with the blueprints of how the card was made. The controversy was, did NVIDIA cover this up or not? I think that it's more just... Uh, more kind of slacking more things where engineers were trying to do something marketing didn't really understand it and there was just a mix-up because i'd much rather believe it's a faux pas because that seems so much more realistic than nvidia this company who's been pretty upfront about all their hardware and what they do and how they do what they do to sit there and do something like this just kind of seems out of their character now i've done side-by-side testing with uh both nvidia cards and the r9 290x and as far as rendering goes I work on a Titan on my normal uh, editing bay, but I also have my second editing bay, and that's running the R9 290X. And rendering times between those two have been pretty close. I would say for a four-minute 4K project, we're talking a difference of about a minute and a half in rendering time, which is not very substantial. But the price difference between these cards is substantial. Now, the R9 290X is a heat sink in your computer uh (laughs) this thing runs at i believe almost 300 watts compared to the 160 or 180 watts that the gtx 8 uh, 980 and 970 run at but it's so much cheaper what do you think about going OpenGL for your adobe editing program um I believe it's actually called OpenCL. No, OpenCL. I'm sorry. OpenGL is another standard for, (laughs) man, I'm just messing this up today. No, that's that's all right. I think the the thing that I I was excited about is the the standard um, OpenCL is is open to everybody. Like anybody can use that graphic standard and it's supported on Mm -hmm. both uh, AMD cards as well as NVIDIA cards. And in the new MacBook, or not MacBook, but the Mac Towers, the trash can shape deal, they're using <laughs> uh, AMD GPUs in those systems. And because of that, Adobe has started programming pretty heavily for OpenCL as opposed to uh, just specifically for CUDA. Now, if you go into Adobe CC and you start looking at your effects, it'll actually give you a little icon next to the effect that tells you, Uh, this effect is optimized for CUDA only, or this effect Mm -hmm. is optimized for OpenCL and CUDA. And when they switched from Adobe CC to Adobe CC 2014 and possibly now 2015, 
the number of CL applications and CL plus CUDA applications went up dramatically. Do you think yes. uh, we're going to move to OpenCL as the standard across the board as opposed to a specific Absolutely. NVIDIA standard? I think that... Uh... I think Adobe would like to see that happen. Adobe has, you know, no horse in a graphics card race. Uh, they don't care. And NVIDIA's CUDA technology, I think this is one of those things where NVIDIA came up with a system that is arguably better, and it's better made for doing this, and it has a lot more, I guess you could say, support because it's been out a little longer. Well, it's been used longer. Well, I think OpenCL is technically older. But Hold on, though. CUDA, said, the reason CUDA is being used so much in these applications is because NVIDIA provides some really simple, easy tools to implement CUDA mm -hmm. into your program language. Uh, OpenCL yeah. is... It's there, but no one's been like, hey, I'll just feed you the code so that you can scoop it up and put it in your program without having to do any extra work at all. I think right. that's why in the, the beginning, CUDA was sort of the, the go-to structure is because if you're a company making software and you're like, hey, I want something Absolutely. that's easy, you're going to go with the one where the, the graphics card <laughs> company has already basically given you everything you need and all you have to do is you know attach a few uh, calls to get to their api and that's it and they made it so no, simple like here's fair. the code but when you compare nvidia and atis the two big titans uh in this arms race titans. You'll, <laughs> you'll see that uh both of them uh, are going in much different directions nvidia kind of has this apple mindset where they are kind of having control over all the new technologies that they produce and arguably they're better supported um and then ATI is going in completely opposite direction. I mean, this isn't necessarily a video thing, but when you look at 3D technology with NVIDIA for their gaming, uh, there's very few applications that support it. There's almost no monitors that support it. Uh, and you, some could argue that, though, it's a faster experience. It'll produce better frame rates. A AMD, on the other hand, is doing something uh, different with their uh, video and I'm trying to think, oh, what I'm trying to say is uh, video sync, vertical sync. Oh, yeah. The G-Sync and the, and the free sync. The G-Sync and the free sync. And so ATI is going with trying to go with open standards, trying to say, hey, look, hardware manufacturers, you could do a little bit of this, and then you, we're supporting you. Where NVIDIA says, you got to do all of this to make it work with our cards. And though there isn't many head-to-head -head tests in that department of V-Sync, uh, to me, NVIDIA looks like the better solution for that, but it'll cost more. So... Uh, in this case, I think OpenCL is really the future, and I think if you give it uh, 2015, I wouldn't be surprised if they're neck and neck in terms of supported plugins. I mean, you're right. We've already got all the major plugins supported. We've I was just looking over the, the count right now, and I think the OpenCL and uh, CUDA count for the number of effects supported is one-to-one, mm -hmm. -one or CLs winning a little bit. I can't remember, but uh, the issue is right now is that some of those aren't um, – congruent they don't cover both of them so cl's right, yeah. winning in some things and then cuda's winning in other things and while the numbers are neck and neck uh you know one's still better at one thing and one's yeah. better at the other stuff yeah. i don't know i'm i've got a graphics card but, nerd I, because i <laughs> edit all the time and i've done so many right. tests where especially when they started working with the mercury engine where it went from when it was just cpu bound where my rendering times and i believe this is like um adobe uh cs4 my rendering times were like three times slower than when i switched over to i believe i started with the gtx 280 because that was the original card that was supported for this whole endeavor and mm -hmm. it went up so much that i was really excited because you know especially if you're working on like a 30 minute project and you're rendering it out if you can render out you know five times or four times faster that means you're going from like 
four hours or five hours of rendering to, you know, an hour and a half, or maybe yeah. like even, you know, that's so much less time that you don't have to worry about like, oh shoot, what happens if the power goes out? You know, uh, you know, or what have, obviously I should have an interrupted, uh, non-interruptible power supply. Don't get started right. on that. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the thing is that's, that's where it's, it's, it's a thing that makes it so much better for editors is anytime you can increase yep. rendering speeds, that's just, that's time that you don't have to spend waiting and worrying. I know I'm, I'm driving this into the ground, but and be- no, no, no. And before we move on to the next subject uh, for people who do want to nerd out and is kind of interested in this, it's a bit dated, but if you do a search for studio one productions.com as in the number, oh, yeah. uh, they've, they've got a great write up on how CUDA works. Uh, they don't have much in there in terms of open CL, but what you can do is they've got a little project package for CS five, which of course will work with the newer versions and footage that you can use to benchmark against their benchmarks. And so that's a great way too of figuring out how much you're getting out of your system in total and its performance. Cause I think it also includes software tests as well, just on the CPU. Uh, and I like using that to make sure that when I'm comparing one system to another and when I'm trying to set up workflows and stuff like that, I can understand what kind of hardware works well for what other things. But if you want to nerd out, they've got a big, long article full of how memory works and all that kind of stuff while you edit, at least for CUDA cores, you know, and um, well, and we'll the other more people. The other really handy thing they have is actually a list of the best performing systems and what's in those systems. So yeah. if you don't want to go through the hassle of like, you know, doing all the research and figuring it out, just go to their, their scoreboard <laughs> and look and see, okay, this guy has the top performing system. What's in his system. And it has an entire breakdown of everything there. I believe they have a CS six out. I don't know if they've perfected anything for CC yet, but the last I checked, there no. was a CS six version on that studio one site. So look into yeah. that. That's an awesome way to pick your parts too. If you have, a big budget for editing computer, then there's some really sexy machines on that list. And if you if you edit a lot, you've got deadlines. Uh, you know what? These these kind of graphic cards that help you out with editing and rendering, they're the kind of thing that can turn a three-day edit into a one-day edit under the right circumstances. Yeah, and real-time playback is also really nice. Um, working with 4K footage, if you are editing for a long period of time, and you're doing like uh, proxy files or some weird crap like that, or you have to drop it down to like one quarter res, it makes it so much harder to get through your project is you're slugging through it, or you have to hit the enter key and wait for all the frames to render out. You know, th- those sorts <laughs> yeah. of things are such a headache. I can work on basically uh, full playback, full res, 4K footage with, you know, four or five video clips in my timeline stacked on top of each other doing transitions. And unless I'm doing some weird color correction and stuff, which I save that for the end on 4K footage just because it's such a GPU intensive thing, then you're not going to have to worry about real-time playback. You can get that right out of the gate. So that's super sexy. I, I like Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Uh, one other thing I want to point out, guys, um, you do not have to necessarily have the biggest, baddest computer to edit on. I have three editing bays in the studio, and the one I'm actually doing this podcast on right now is a eight-core AMD processor on you know a cheapo $45 motherboard, and I believe it's got an old GTX 680 in it, and it mm-hmm. still handles just fine. The GPU really makes the difference over the CPU in that particular application, and uh, you could build this system that I'm on right now for under $700 pretty easy. I think the oh, yeah. eight core, what is it? The eighty one twenties and the eighty one fifties, which was the last generation of AMD's eight core processors. You can pick those up for like eighty bucks or a hundred bucks, and they're on sale all over the place all the time. And then a motherboard. I think, I think you could probably, 
build that system for less than that, man. You could probably do that for 500. Yeah, you might uh, be I mean, right. Just, I haven't checked on the prices in a while. <laughs> uh, I mean, that being said, also, real quick, if, if people are looking for buying a system because they're not interested in building uh, at that price point for $700, 750 Amazon has deals on uh, Dell XPS yeah. systems that run i7 processors. You can get them with NVIDIA cards already in them. Um, and they're refurbs, but I just built out a whole studio, I think a year and a half ago on all of those uh, refurb XPSs. Haven't had a problem with a single one of them. And that i7 is like a 2.8 gigahertz. It will sit there and tear up footage all day. Yeah, I'm still rocking one of those in the back room. It's a uh, an old XPS system with a i7 920 so i mean that's what like (laughs) six generations back in the i7 series and that thing other than being a power hog it does a great job so i haven't really had any reason to get rid of it now moving on down the line from computer hardware to more camera stuff uh the eos m has been kind of a neglected thing in canon's lineup and it looks like they're going to be bringing out an ESM3. This is another mirrorless camera, and it looks like it's going to get most of the features that the new T6i have. That includes the APS-C 24 megapixel sensor, the Digix 6 processor. It'll have all the video options, same ISO rating. And they've actually added a tilt screen to this, which is is kind of nice. Um, it flips up over the top, similar to the Sony sort of style of flip-out screens. And this guy is not coming to the United States. I know mm. the EOS M was not a popular camera. And because of that, you can pick these up on eBay for around $200 or less. And the kit lenses, the STM lenses that go along with the EOS M body, you can get those for mm-hmm. 50 to 100 bucks. But for video makers, the original EOS M supported Magic Lantern, so you could get audio level meters and some of that other stuff going. It had a audio jack, so you can plug audio into your camera directly. You have the option because it's a small um, diaphragm, not diaphragm, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, flange. Thank you. Flange. <laughs> flange, not distance. A, flange distance. It's got a really you small flange distance. So because of that, you can mount pretty much anything to it, and that includes FD lenses. If you're a full-frame camera user and you're trying to hook an FD lens onto like the uh, Canon 5D Mark III, for example, you have to use that weird teleconverter that basically puts another lens in front of it. Now, I know some people are going to say you can do that without it, and that's correct. If you want to disassemble your FD lenses, there are a few mm-hmm. people that sell some like crazy machined uh, brass pieces that you unscrew portions of the lens and screw those on, and then it goes further <laughs> into the body of your camera but the eos m you don't need any of that you just put a flange adapter on there and bam now you're working with all those uh, this one looks pretty sexy and i know that it's probably not going to be anything anybody in the united states really gets their hands on right away but i think maybe if we're lucky this will go the way of the eos m and no one will like it and it'll be at the bottom <laughs> of the rung and in about yep Three, three or four months, we'll start seeing it drop in price, and then in about a year, it'll start hitting the two or three hundred dollar mark. And then, then this is a pretty sweet camera. You're getting a T6i yeah. body for you know two or three hundred bucks compared to uh, what's the T6i? I think the T6i is going to be uh, eight hundred out of the gate. Eight hundred, yeah, yeah seven fifty something like that. So, man, if they could bring the price down on this, or if this just dives in price because it's not popular anywhere. Maybe you can get it gray market on eBay. I don't know. What do you think well, about this wonky let's, guy? 
I think I think that there are some great features here that a lot of people probably don't consider out of the box. And one of them is, hey, focus speaking. Um, that's true. You know, that's for somebody who's starting up filmmaking, because once again, usually the T3i, T6i, whatever Rebel you want, is usually recommended as that first go-to camera for uh, people who want to get started and try things out and move away from maybe cell phones or something like that that they've been using for their videos. And not only do you get the ability to do all these lenses like you do with mirrorless people, uh, but you've also got a great Wi-Fi app. You've got the ability to shoot remotely and do things like that, which um, is something that, you know, people who get uh, other DSLRs don't always get. And it seems like such a cheap thing that you're like, oh, I probably won't use this. And then you get surprised when you find yourself, oh, well, this is kind of in a weird spot. Why don't I just open up the app? It makes my life so much easier. Also, the screen tilting, um, it actually tilts down as well as up, as well as over. So, oh, does it tilt over as well? I didn't see any pictures of it actually tilted to the side. It was always... No, no, not to the side, but uh, it'll it'll tilt down as well as up. And so unlike the... Uh, the next, Sonys are just uh, limited to like kind of a flat plane yeah. to give you that sort yeah. of like look down sort of feel. Yeah, you but know also I mean? too, they won't, they won't flip down either. So if you're trying to hold the camera up to shoot something, because usually... No, it's only like a 45 degree... Yeah. Yeah. And so in this case, though, the camera will uh, let you bend the screen both ways and stuff like that. And the remote shooting and everything. So you can put it into crazy situations and get that shot, which is part of the reason why I look at a camera like this, too. If you're looking for a second camera, those Wi-Fi capabilities, you can set it up in the back of a wedding reception or something like that or wherever. Check on it, monitor it, hit record or whatever you need to do in order to keep it going. Now, I haven't used um, any of Canon's new Wi-Fi stuff, but on the Canon 6D, the Wi-Fi implementation there only allowed you to use Wi-Fi in photo mode, not in video mm -hmm. mode. To use it in video mode, you had to use that uh, uh, TipLink hack that I posted a long time ago, and you would plug that in, and then it would use the EOS utility in order to beam it to your phone and get it there. Yeah. But the original EOS M had limited access for the utility to be plugged into it, so it would not beam video using that method. It works with most cameras, but mm -hmm. it did not work with the EOS M. And I would guess Canon would probably try to do something similar to this guy. Do you know if the uh, Wi-Fi utility will allow video control? I, I don't really know. I haven't I haven't seen it, and I'm hoping that it will. But for me, even when I use uh, the GH3, which doesn't help you with video, you can hit record, and then it just doesn't show you anything. Um, I Even though that sounds like it's useless, I still use it when it's set up somewhere where I can't reach it to make sure the camera's still recording. It'll at least say, oh, I can't show you what the camera's looking at because I'm still recording. I go, okay, good. You're still recording. That's all I want to know, you know, without disrupting somebody or something like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's about, uh, the tools and how you use them. And in this situation, it, you're right. If this thing drops in price like that, I'm definitely going to look at it as just another body to throw a lens onto and set it up as a B camera. I have a full EOS M set up for that reason. <laughs> I have, you know, I don't use it that much, but what ends up happening right. is someone will be like, Hey, I got this film project. Uh, can you help me for free? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that, but I can lend you this mediocre camera that will do the job for you. And they're like, Oh, okay. Well that, that thanks man. You're doing me a solid. And I am because mm -hmm. that camera is not that bad. It's like running around with no. a T2i or something like that. And so I can't even like bother getting rid of it because it's not worth enough to sell used. I think they sell like 140 right. used. So, I mean, man, I might as well just keep it for that. And if this new yeah. camera actually takes some of my lenses, that would be a, 
a cool thing as well. Now, this has been basically a camera release <laughs> podcast, so we're going to continue on down the line here. I've kind of talked about this on some other casts, but uh, we'll go ahead and hit it. The Canon 5DS and 5DSR specs. I was kind of a little harsh on this on the site. I'm not super excited about this particular camera. It looks to me like basically Canon has released the photographer tool for some photographers. I know there are people out there that do production work in there in a studio all the time. And the features that are available in this camera, like that floating shutter and the extra control over your TTL stuff, that's really nice for controlling your flash heads. And then the 50 megapixel sensor, you know, it's not going to be as low light capable, but for people who are in a studio, they're going to have tons of light in there anyway. But is this for anybody else? It doesn't feel that way. Uh, you know, I look at the specs and stuff like that, and uh, I think you're right. I think maybe this is Canon responding to some people being like, Nikon's got more pixels. Nikon's got more pixels. Yeah, yeah. Right? The pixel race from like, you know, the early 2000s uh, all over again. But. <laughs> Part of it, part of it could be too, because the way they advertise this so much as photography slash time lapse, I feel like maybe you know they want consumers to remember that they quote unquote make the best still camera there is, and I feel like in this situation, because this when the 6D came out, people were talking about video. You know, the 7D Mark II came out, people only talked about the video. When the Mark III came out, they talked about look at all this low light video. Uh, very few people were talking about the actual photography part of it. And maybe photographers started to be like, you're not including any new features for TTL or anything, stuff like that, which TTL in general is, you know, as frustrating as all hell because nobody can agree to just have stuff work with each other. You always have to go to some external system yeah. in order to sync your flashes that aren't part of whatever. So, you know, side note on that flash thing. Um, yeah. I actually do have a pretty awesome solution and I've been using it for a while. I don't have it in front of me, but they're the uh, Yonghyo um, a two gigahertz uh, wireless adapter systems for TTL. And you can set up groups for your flashes. You can do all kinds of like really simple controls and stuff. And then it's got an LCD screen on it that's like, hey, want to make this easy? Set flash one, two, and three into group one. And they're they're not just uh, transmitters. They're transceivers. So if you change mm-hmm. a setting on one of them, it sends the information back to the camera as though it were wired in as a group. So you can do a lot of cool like A, B, C, and D groups for your flash if you want second, first shutter, or whatever, and uh, first curtain, mm-hmm. second curtain, or, or all that crap. And it's it's really nice. There's so many features that I have not gotten into <laughs> all of them, but you can buy those Yongio wireless setups for your flash heads for, I think, the whole set. I have four of them total uh, for all my mm-hmm. uh uh, 580 Mark II, whatever's, um, and those guys are cheap. It's like 300 bucks for the whole set. And then that new Master Controller yeah. is really sweet. It works. It's backwards compatible with the older Yangio wireless systems. So if you have one of the like mid-range ones that they released last year, it still can talk to those and set up the control and the flash and everything. And it'll send the information from the camera back to those guys. So like you can actually send out groups and stuff. If your camera has that control, like the 6D has a lot of um, flash TTL features. You can actually send mm-hmm. out settings for each of your flashes. And, you know, and absolutely. it's, it's and super sexy. No I'm really, ex- I love it. For the price, for the price too, it's unbeatable. I haven't heard any complaints. You can get a pair 
for just a, a trigger and receiver for 80 bucks. Oh, wow. Uh, as, yeah, on Amazon free shipping. Um, as well as controller units for 50 bucks and stuff like that, as well as some flashes themselves go between 50 and $200, which is well below most of the stuff. And when you compare features in terms of flash time and bulb recharge and everything else, they're close enough for just about every photographer, unless somebody's got a chip on their shoulder about using Canon. Well, and some of them uh, even have Nikon. universal support. I believe the uh, 560EX2 is capable of working with Olympus, Canon, and Nikon uh, now that they've got the, like, the little like head thing on it. Mm-hmm. I don't know about Sony. I think Sony's still like, you have to buy some <laughs> kind of adapter. So that's a thing. Because it's Sony. Because it's Sony. Yeah, well, like, it's their smart adapter system. They've got like the audio going into it and all these yep. other crazy things. But that's really cool too. And I have the 580 EX2s. I had a 680, but I got rid of it because it was just too expensive and it didn't do that much more than my 580EX. And I basically use those wireless he- uh, controllers from Yangyo as a replacement for the internal wireless controller that was available with the 680EXs. And then I have a couple of the Yangyo flashes, and I believe 580 maybe is the label on those as well, or maybe it's 560. I don't know. They... they they kind of copy check them out yeah check them out go look at them the highest end model supports uh full one eight thousandths of a second uh flash strobes uh first curtain second curtain and all the features that you'd get out of your other one plus it can be a master or slave for the controller system it sends out ir uh and they work perfectly with their other adapters there's been some reports about inconsistent flash output from those and I have experienced that, but you can usually compensate for it by changing the exposure settings individually on the heads. And once you kind of get that sorted out, you can you can get it to where they're balanced pretty even. And for 160 mm-hmm. bucks versus four or five hundred dollars for the Canon version, totally worth checking out. Um, oh yeah. So down that rat hole and back to the 5DS <laughs> and 5DSR. The other thing that makes me angry about this, and uh, you know I'm not like going red and turned into the Hulk, but <laughs> They're charging two hundred extra dollars to remove stuff from the sensor. <laughs> it shouldn't it be the other way around where you don't get this thing and it's less expensive instead of you get this thing and it's less expensive. I Are you know. talking about a low pass filter? Yes, talking I'm about? talking about the low pass filter because that's if you look at the specs, that's the only real difference between the 5DS and the 5DSR. And in Canon's promotional video, they don't even they they're kind of like they almost. Di- diss their camera a little bit they're like the 5ds is great here's what it does it's so great and then here's the 5dsr uh you know if you like some weird stuff you can get that but we call this kind of a fringe camera don't go with that if you don't (laughs) need to it's going to give you more a patterns and all that kind of stuff so stick with this one and now they're going to sell it for uh three thousand eight hundred and ninety nine versus three thousand what six hundred and ninety nine i believe is the 5ds i don't know I'm, I'm it just rambling It doesn't here. make sense to me. I And I understand, you know, there's a lot you can get into with low-pass filters and Bayer patterns and all kinds of stuff like that, that, heck, if you're shooting on something like a red, uh, knowing that kind of stuff is really important because it changes the way that your image looks. Uh, but on the Canon, it just, you're right. It doesn't make sense that they say that's a feature for us to remove filters or cancel out filters and stuff like that. Uh, the point of the filter is to make shooting easier to remove more patterns and everything else. So it just seems, especially you're right with the way that they've marketed. It's like, well, why are you really coming out this camera? Do you really see that much demand for something like this? And not that I'm, you know, cruising a lot of, uh, 
photography model shoots and stuff like that. But I can't think of a photographer that is going to make, say that's a killer feature. I need that feature on my camera because it's going to change the way I work. Yeah, I don't, there's probably someone out there and I know there's a use case somewhere. Same with a 50 megapixel. While I say like, no one mm-hmm. needs that, that's not actually true. There's probably like five or 10% of the people out there that are just jonesing for more pixels. And <laughs> most of them probably do need it for product shots or studio shots or whatever. And they want to be able to punch in to do whatever they want to do with it. And 50 megapixels is just fine. One thing that I'm less upset about now that I've kind of parsed all the news and stuff is I thought the 5DS was going to be Canon's only... 5d announcement this year but i've been talking to mitch from planet 5d as well as reading some of the rumors that are out and it sounds like what canon did here is they released the 5ds early so that it wasn't competing for advertisement when nab hits Uh, from what Mm. i understand there may still be a 5d mark 4 in the market uh that's announced at nab And the reason I say that is, first of all, the 5DS, even though they announced it now, it's not coming out until third or fourth quarter of of 2015. So that's a really early announcement. But I think they wanted to give it its own kind of time in the sun before they say, (laughs) okay, here's the 5D Mark IV. And I'm even hearing some rumors about possible 4K in Canon's lineup that they're going to be releasing something to compete with the GH4 and that mm-hmm. ilk. So maybe that's the 5D Mark IV. I mean, they did that with the GH4. As soon as they put well, the 4 in the title, 4K. Uh, yep. Well, and I think definitely everyone's racing to 4K right now. Um, and it's pretty clear that Panasonic hit there first, uh, even though you got an A7S and amazing low light and all that kind of stuff. And they tout 4K. I think it's also unreasonable for them to market 4K when you need uh, an external device that isn't even an accessory Sony provides, if that makes sense. Oh, you're talking about the A7S? You know? Yeah. Yeah. But still, so everyone's on a race to 4K. And I think, too, that Canon may have been disappointed with the fact that no one was willing to pay that money for their 1DC or whatever for 4K footage. They go, no, that's all right. I don't need 4K. Or if I do, I'll just go to, like, Sony's lineup of cameras. But Well, and um, even the 1D's uh, 4K footage, that was no audio and motion JPEG video. And then you had to have yeah. some, like, crazy big cards to handle that. So in, Fast cards, too. Yeah, yeah. in the... Uh, in the demonstrations they did with that, they were actually at uh, the NAB last year. Canon was basically promoting it as, hey, you can shoot 30 frames a second burst and then pick a still out of that and you can grab that still and print it off on this Canon printer. Yeah. So, I mean, it, they weren't even <laughs> trying to say like, well, it shoots 4K. They're like, look what this will do for photography, you know, and sports photographers yeah. and stuff. So, you know, I hope if they do release it in the 5D Mark IV that it does not mean that we're getting a motion JPEG Kodak with no audio recording. That would be yeah. very, very obnoxious. Absolutely. All right, rolling so, down the we'll line here. See. We've got a few more things to cover. I threw this in kind of as a, a oddball thing. Did you see that air clip from Olympus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I, I remember these rumors about it too, like last year. To describe this to the audience, guys, this is basically the Sony QX1, which is that weird attachable thing for your cell phone. You used Wi-Fi to connect to it, and your phone is a viewfinder. Only Olympus is releasing what they're calling the AirClip, and it's a micro four-thirds, sixteen megapixel sensor. 
in the exact same form factor. So it's got a little pop out that hooks onto your camera. It's got an internal rechargeable battery. It's got um, a micro SD slot. So you can actually put a card into this and it's USB or micro USB support. So you can charge it and pull your data off from there. It's also got Wi-Fi, obviously, and then Bluetooth controls. And the videos for this are hilarious. Like, it's a girl like walking around and doing selfies in all these different ways and using her cell phone and yep. then holding it up in the air to get that perfect shot of, of the wind, like blowing her hair back and stuff. <laughs> and well, that is not what I would use this for. This is really cool because I think, um, I was looking up the price on this and it's three, uh, 33,000 yen. So that's 270 or $300, depending on like what the currency conversion is. So Roughly. for 300 bucks, imagine you could get a micro four thirds camera that was palm of your hand size. You already have your cell phone with you anyway. And it has some of the same features. Like if you notice electronic shutter speed up to one sixteen thousandths of a second. So basically it's incorporating everything that uh, the Olympus EM five Mark two is offering. Plus it is well, minus that image stabilization, Plus, it's a tiny little package for like 300 bucks. I mean, I don't know. I, I, as soon as I saw this, I was just like, yes, I need one of these tomorrow. Yeah, it, it, is, it is cool. It is absolutely cool. A lot of people say it's weird and how uh, it's, you know, somehow like just takes the fun out of photography or something like that. But all things considered, you're just buying a sensor. And with like, computers and phones and everything else getting smarter and smarter, I wouldn't be surprised if we start moving towards, hey, forget the point and shoot, just buy a better sensor for your you know, camera, basically, or your uh, phone or what have you. What would be really cool for this is if they started to do something like this, like they did with RED early on, where you had the interchangeable body parts as you wanted to build up or reduce the camera. So imagine for a moment, if you will, they sold <laughs> something like this. And then it had a plug on the back. And with the plug, you could buy, I don't know, a 4K recording unit and you could plug it in and now you're recording 4K. But if you don't want to record 4K for like $400, you can buy the 1080p adapter that just goes on there. And then behind that, you can buy a module that has the screen on it or a module that has like the audio inputs and stuff. And it's all just done in parts and pieces. That would be really sexy because then it's like, what project am I working on? Let's build my own camera and get it sorted out. And I know some of the manufacturers in the high end have been moving to that sort of application. Sony with the FS7 and 700 have a box that actually attaches to the back to do 4K recording and some of these other bits and pieces. But mm -hmm. this is like the consumer friendly, super cute $300 version of that, man. And then on top of that, Olympus primes and Panasonic primes are so tiny. You could throw like yeah. three primes in your bag, the 45, probably the 25 and the 17.5 or 17, 18, whatever it is. And that would take up almost no space with this. I mean, you basically would have four tiny lens bags and you could toss that into a backpack or whatever. It's not going to be amazing, but Hell, if you're trying to get a still yeah. shot or you just need to do a little bit of video, the Micro Four Thirds is completely capable of doing that. Now, there was no mention of video features on this guy, so no. I don't know if it will be capable. Maybe there's not enough room in there to handle that sort of thing. Uh, Micro SD <laughs> isn't exactly the most capable high-speed recording format, so that could you know, be missing from this. 
my assumption is there's no video in it or video is not advertised because they don't want it to be a video camera. And f I think that comes from a consumer standpoint of the, co the customer experience, because uh, is anyone who's used Wi-Fi even on the new uh, GoPro Hero Black 4 yeah. or 3 Plus, even though the Wi-Fi is improved, you know, downloading, even if you don't do ProRes and all that other stuff, downloading, you know, a three-minute video takes forever over the Wi-Fi. It's a crappy experience. The photos are pretty fast. You know, you can download, I think, probably about one a second. It's not that bad. And so for something like this, hey, if it takes a second to download your photo from the camera, that's not a big deal. You could snap and, you know, pull it to the phone at the same time. But doing video, it's not like it's going to have the throughput to actually record video onto the camera. Uh, plus, I'd worry about you know, random disconnects because Wi-Fi is pretty flaky these days. But yep. uh, so, and then you're right with the micro SD cards, they want to keep it small. And that means running slower cards because you're running smaller cards in it. So it probably does some kind of video. They probably just don't push it or advertise it because they're concerned that the customer is not going to be happy if they buy this for video purposes and it doesn't do well. Yeah, I, I could see that either way. I would still be happy with this for stills. I mean, it yeah, would be really absolutely. nice to have something like this to just grab something with a, you know, a prime micro four thirds, a 25 millimeter F1.4 and, and get a couple of cool shots while you're wandering around. And then that's even less that you have to carry with you. And yeah. I posit that someday in the future, your <laughs> camera will just have a slot in it where your phone slides in and like plugs in and then that's it. Yep. You don't even have to worry about it. And they're already doing that with audio recording. I mean, they have the iPhone um, i audio from Tascam where you just slide your phone right into the unit and then bam now it's using your phone as the recording yep. interface for the four and eight track recorders all right last thing on the list here and while we're talking about mobile devices if you are a adobe cc subscriber and that's cloud if you aren't familiar with the cc term uh that lightroom 1.3 whoop and somebody's moving stuff around in the <laughs> show notes my bad my that's bad. okay uh lightroom 1.3 for iphone and ipad is now available uh looks like they're adding or adding some more features including uh faster edit edit and copy uh easily improve images i mean i guess Really having, generic, yeah. Really generic terms. I'm reading these, and I thought it was going to say something here. important. Instead, it's just like this is good. It does great. It does good hey, stuff. What good about job. presentation mode? Show off your photos to your family and yeah, friends. I know, man. Okay, so this doesn't sound exciting. Reading their news release, but what <laughs> is exciting is actually having Lightroom in a portable format. And I yeah. haven't tried it yet, but I'm told that there is also an Android version available for Lightroom. Have you given that a shot or do you have a Adobe CC I subscription? Have, I, I do have a WCC subscription. I've not get the Android a shot. I've heard the Android has some bugs that they're working out. Um, I don't know if this update is going to fix some of those solutions because I did open it up once, once. And it was pretty laggy and pretty slow on... Uh, what was a Samsung 10 inch tablet that was maybe only two years old. So I think um, the solution is to buy a NVIDIA Tegra one <laughs> powered tablet because obviously a dollar tablet. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously Adobe works best with NVIDIA. Just, just, so you know, that's, that's a rule. <laughs> just so, Yeah. It's, it's a rule. No, um, I would like to mess with that. I haven't taken a chance yet. Um, right now I have my phone and then I have my Nexus seven two but I don't really have any other mm -hmm. Android tablets in my collection. When I do Lightroom work, right. I actually, 
and I know uh, everybody complains about Windows 10 or Windows 8 and the whole tablet experience, but I actually have a Windows tablet that I do my Lightroom work on when I'm um, traveling light. And it's a, a Lenovo ThinkPad 8. And it runs Windows 8.1. It's got the regular interface. It'll what kind do. Of core does it have? It's got a quad core uh, 3770 Atom processor in it. And uh, I believe two gigs of RAM, 128 gig SSD. I've got a, another 128 gig micro SD card in there. It's 1080p, or well, it's bigger than 1080p. It's 1920 by 1200. And then it's an eight inch tablet. So it's bigger than a regular Nexus tablet device, like the Nexus 7s, mm-hmm. but uh, not so much so to make it awkward. And the only thing I've say re- it runs Lightroom. Yeah, it'll run Lightroom just fine. I am concerned because right now, uh, even though it's a quad core, the implementation of Windows on it is a 32-bit instead of 64-bit mm. system. And I think we talked about this in an earlier cast. Adobe is discontinuing updates for 32-bit systems and only releasing Lightroom for 64-bit right. systems. But it is a 64-bit capable processor. So hopefully with Windows 10, uh, they'll show me some love and give me a 64-bit version to install onto my Lenovo tablet. The only thing I run into, though, is my hands are pretty big. They're nice, (laughs) fat hands. So at 1080p on a screen that size, pushing buttons with my fingers is a little tough. The tile interface is fine, but when you get into Photoshop, or not Photoshop, into Lightroom, it's not optimized for the tablet experience. Whereas I'm hoping these releases, the uh, um, iPhone and the Android tablet device releases for Lightroom, are actually optimized for that. But I ended up getting one of those ArcSoft pop-out mice for the tablet. So I set it on a on a, a table or something like that. And then I actually still use a mouse to work around in Lightroom. And if you think about it, you don't really do much typing in Lightroom. So you can basically no, yeah. like click your way through photo editing. I mean, shortcut keys, but with yeah. a touchscreen. Yeah, you can't really do necessary. shortcut keys with a touchscreen. I mean, you can. And there are a few <laughs> like um, ASCII applications where you can set up one key to trigger multiple events. But I haven't done any of that on there. I'm not that fancy. But it works. And it's nice uh, because it's so light. Just an update because I'm looking at it here. Um, Lightroom Mobile, as far as I can see, does not seem to have one that's compatible with tablets. Let oh, me just really? Check that. Yeah, they've got Lightroom Mobile, and that's the only guy. Yep. And when I go to install it, uh, it shows me my Note, th- uh, my Note Four, my Note Two, uh, but a Samsung tablet that's only two years old is not compatible. The uh, Nexus Seven is not compatible. Oh, whoa. So. I think that right now they just have it set up to be a phone-only app, so keep that in mind. I'm sure that'll change with time, just like they made one for the iPad. I'm sure they'll make one for tablets, but right now it's not something you can uh, jump on if you're on a tablet, at least through uh, the Google Play Store. You could always try sideloading it. There's ways around it, but just saying officially through the Google Play Store, it only seems to be supporting phones. There might be something in the uh, cloud subscription that allows you to sideload the API or something. I don't don't actually know. Um, all right, rolling on down to discussion topics here. We just got a few things and we're pushing up against our hour limit here. So let's cover these quick, uh, pro GH4 video and photography settings. Uh, this is a rundown. I've got several links that take you to multiple locations. It looks like because I'm really good at doing these <laughs> show notes today. Um, I'm clicking yep. on these really quickly as I stall here. <laughs> And it it looks like um, several people basically just dug through the GH4 and worked for a long time to determine what they believe 
are the best flat uh, settings for the GH4 for color correction and post. Uh, they've also got yep. some interesting settings uh, for the different modes available for uh, Cinema D, for Cinema V, uh, mm-hmm. discussing both of those. And these aren't uh, files that you need to download and install on your camera. It's basically just some ideal settings in your contrast, sharpness, noise yeah. reduction, and all that inside the camera to get you the best look out of the camera. I haven't tried these yet. Have you given any of these a try on your GH3? Uh, yeah. Uh, the big thing that a lot of people, I think, don't realize is that there's a lot of settings that you can mess up. Um and people who go out and instead of kind of playing with it themselves and seeing what does what, uh, they just take people's settings, put it in their camera, and go out and shoot. And that's great if uh, that's a starting point and you want to learn how to mess with your settings. But at the end of the day, like a lot of people I've seen for a long time on the GH4, when everyone was talking about log, they said, hey, make it even more S-like or log-like by uh, upping your uh, master um, – uh, what's that called? Master um, – Oh, are you, I'm looking for the you're talking here. about like the threshold for your contrast and stuff your like black that? black level, basically yeah, the black, black level. level. It's a weird term for black level. But um, anyways, stuff like that will th- – this guy shows an example of how, hey, when you take your uh, pedestal level and you max it out, you're going to get really ugly images. You're going to get a lot of noise. It, it's not built to do this. This isn't the way to utilize the sensor to its ability. There are a few situations where ha- that kind of setting can come in handy. And to be honest, uh, there is no such thing as a best setting, just like there's no such thing as a best camera. There's been tons of shoots I've been on that either have weird colored lights where even white balancing, to me, I go, this isn't quite right. So I'll dive in and actually start to move around with RGB to adjust some of the color space because of the fact that white balance, there's no perfect white balance setting, uh, just like there's no perfect uh, sharpness setting, noise reduction, or things like that. So, But a, a common term that a lot of people use with the gh4 is that hey take down the sharpness and take down the noise reduction that's kind of universal and i i can agree with that because i do think the gh4 is a little bit too sharp a lot of people it can't be sharp enough dj's over there being like i love my video sharpness i, yeah, love I don't it. know man actually <laughs> with the gh4 i shoot it sharp i don't really care that doesn't bother me and in post mm-hmm. if i think it's too sharp i actually will soften it up a little bit and that's something yeah. i can choose to do in post it's pretty it's pretty simple and if i want it to be super sharp that's great so <laughs> i know that's and i'm also honestly i'm lazy <laughs> when it comes to all these like super crazy settings and all that stuff and like mm-hmm. shooting flat that's fine if you have the time to go through and color correct everything and work on all your footage and do all that. But I am one man and I do not have that much time to work on all that stuff. Some of you guys do. That's great. I don't get paid enough to do that. So I don't (laughs) generally what I do is I have just some go-to settings in my Canon Mm -hmm. profile that I grab my Canon camera or my GH4, for example, I have those kind of like monkeyed with a little bit to where I like them and I like what I'm getting out of them. And then I set the the white balance as best I can. I used to think like, oh man, I can just put in the same K value on my both Canon 5D Mark III's and I'll be good to go. But it turned out that even though your numbers are exactly the same, they're slightly off. So that didn't really work for me. It was kind of obnoxious. So now, and this is even more blasphemy for, especially for uh, (laughs) colorists, I actually go through and just select color curves, throw it on the footage, and then 
bloop, 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 push it around a little bit until I'm like, <laughs> well, that looks pretty good. Let's go with that. And then yeah. you turn it over, and if people are happy with it, that's great. If they're not, well, and then you dig that's in. That's not terrible. That's not terrible. We could go into a big topic about you know what quality is in today's video marketplace uh, because I think we can agree that a lot less video quality is becoming the acceptable norm. But uh, in case of this year, it's the GH4. Uh, what the first article that you posted was referring to was that there's a, a, a log mode, a V-log as they call it, that's supposed to emulate the Vericam. And okay. Panasonic said that that's a beta that we aren't, we're messing with it. We aren't sure if we're going to include it or not in the next firmware update. It definitely wasn't included in the last one. Um, so the the idea is, is they came up with a setting that seemed kind of close to what that uh, Vericam log was, but uh, for some people that do color work and stuff like that, that's pretty optimal. I agree with you, DJ. I've got some settings and that's what I run out and I use almost every time. When I am messing with a lot of the detailed settings, it's usually in a studio environment. What I mean by that is I go, this camera's going to sit on this tripod for the next five months and it's not going to move. So I'll spend the extra time making sure that everything's perfect in camera. So then when we go to post, that's one less step we have to do. And that is honestly where a lot of these settings come into play because unless you've got a big team of people, it's usually not worth your time to sit here and play with settings for an hour while the cast is sitting there going, what, when are we going to shoot? So, well, and that's the old um, raw footage trap. You know, a lot of people got into where they're like, oh man, Man, I can do everything in post. This will be amazing. Well, that's great. <laughs> so now you shot a bunch of raw footage. Awesome. Now you have to actually do all the things in post that you said you were going to do. And those all take time, you know, processing your footage, making sure that your white balance is correct, you know, adjusting Absolutely. all of your images and captures to, to look the same and match each other. And now you've just basically volunteered yourself for a, a crap load of work. I'm not that ambitious when it comes to color correction. And I know I do like some horrible stuff and I've honestly, like if you go look through some of my YouTube videos, I was so lazy that I didn't even bother <laughs> when I was switching from, you know, my 5,500 K lights to my 3000 K lights. I didn't bother changing it. So I look like I have jaundice. That's whatever. <laughs> I got to the footage. I was like, well, too bad. I shot that. This is a review of something. I don't care. Here you go. And sure. And when I turn the footage over to somebody, if they don't complain, I don't say anything. And I, I know that's a bad attitude to have and it reflects poorly on my skill set or whatever, but Hey, I'm just working for you. And if you're happy with what I'm giving you, then I'm yeah. done. That's it. I'm not going to go above and beyond unless you tell me to. And if you don't tell me to, then I'm happy. There's, there's, a, and there, I think everyone that works professionally in the industry can agree. There's a point where uh, good enough is, and being done is more important than being perfect. And that becomes a bigger and bigger theme, the bigger and bigger clients you line up where, uh, you know, the more people that are involved and the, the harder the deadlines get, the more it just becomes about, uh, it needs to be done. doesn't need to be perfect. So. Yeah. Now last thing, and we'll close this show up. I've got the pick of the week. Devin, what do you got? Uh, it's, this one's a bit strange because it's not a straight up piece of film gear, uh, but actually the Pebble watch, uh, which I guess if you're on the video, you can see here that I'm wearing here. Fancy. Um, the I got this a while back when it was a little bit more expensive. And at that price, I still probably wouldn't have recommended it for most people because it seemed like more of a gadget than anything really useful. But with these smartwatches starting to come around $100, between $100 and $150, uh, for certain people, uh, it can actually be a very productive tool. And the way that it's been productive for me is that uh, if you're anyone who during shooting or whatever you're doing, especially if you're on location a lot and stuff like that, communication is really important. And 
a lot of us know that we get tons of emails and tons of messages that either don't concern us or don't need a response from us necessarily. And so it's a lot of dismissing notifications on my phone. And if you're somebody who every time you get a notification, you're replying to it, then a smartwatch isn't going to do much unless you want to talk to your watch like Dick Tracy or something like that. But <laughs> I if- kind of want to. I want it to like be my personal assistant. I want Cortana in my wrist. Yeah. And, and eventually we'll probably reach that. But uh, for right now, for me at least, something like the Pebble Watch, it's great because seven-day battery life, I never charge it. It works in sunlight, so when I'm out shooting, it works. Uh, it, it goes into the water for a couple of feet. You know, it works in the shower, so it's completely uh, rugged and ready to go. And for me, I'm t- totally getting texted, hey, I'll be there in 10 minutes. I don't want to pull out my phone when I have a camera in my hand and dismiss a notification saying 10 minutes. So it's great, especially if I got two hands on something and my wrist vibrates, uh, which, you know, you kind of would want to turn that off if you're doing audio and stuff like that. But <laughs> depending on the situation, like especially for music videos and stuff like that that I'll do, uh, I'll get a vibration, I'll check it and go, okay, he'll be here in 10 minutes. And that's it. And I don't have to like pull my phone out, especially too, because I've got a gigantic phone, pull my phone out and go, okay, unlock, okay, dismiss, and then go back to work. Um, And they've added new features where you can actually kind of do short replies as well that are kind of convenient. I mean, people have made apps that you could type out messages on your watch. That'd be ridiculous. But if, if somebody says, hey, is it cool if I like bring extra water to the shoot? I can go reply, yes, send, and I'm done. And so that's kind of nice when I'm running around, I'm really busy. It's almost like having a phone on my wrist, which I think eventually is probably what we'll all move to. But uh, for right now, it's like right in that price range of $100. If you are dismissing a lot and not replying to a lot of people, but you still need that information, you need to be informed. This is kind of a good middle ground where I don't have to pull up my phone and be distracted all the time. As for other people who all they do is text all day, they always have their phone in their hands. I'm like, well, what's the point of the watch? Because you already have your phone in your hand. But So for me, being rugged, being dirty too, there's a lot of times where I'm laying in like sand or stuff like that. Uh, You know, my phone vibrates and you go, great, was that important or not? Like you're, you're, you play that game of being like, do I need to shut my phone because I'm in a compromised position right now? I don't want to, you know, so. I'm kind of a jerk, actually. I usually have someone else take care of all of that, like interaction with people so that I don't have to do it. Um, I generally just turn my phone off when I'm on a shoot so that yeah. if you want to get a hold of me, too bad. Get a hold of someone else. And in well, fact, you're, well, you're obviously not a producer that are you? No, no. I <laughs> I work with a, a guy named Matt on a regular basis and Matt takes yeah. care of all the people wrangling. So when like stuff's coming in, like he's the guy who's getting like frustrated and upset mm-hmm. and like so-and-so's not showing up on time. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, let's get the next shot and go. Now, how long is the battery Lucky life you. on that thing? Uh, see, like I said, uh, I get, I get about five days, five um, days. I mean, now two. the things I were, was reading about that said like a day at a two days max. Is it because of the e-ink display? And am I thinking of like the Motorola version that's, that's got you the are, color? You are thinking of the Motorola version. All of the Android ones that all have microphones, uh, and colored displays and everything else, uh, the, they can, they're the ones that usually last a day, maybe a day and a half. And they're the ones that can kind of be hard to see in the sunlight because okay. it is an IPS display or what have you. Um, but the talkback function is really cool. And a lot of them though, aren't very water resistant. And for me, I'm like, I need something that I can read in the sun. I like the fact that the display is always on so I can always see the time or I can always see whatever the last notification was. And, um, I, I like the fact that I have that ability to be waterproof. I much prefer that over being able to respond by my voice to a notification or something like that. Being able to search facts on Google with my voice. I'd much rather just have something that is quiet, doesn't really make any noise, sits on my wrist, and 
just will take whatever abuse I give it. Now, my pick of the day here is actually BitTorrent Sync. I've been working with uh, Devin here. He's going to handle a couple of effects for me. And I needed to send him a 50 gig file. Now, there are a lot of ways to send files, but 50 gig starts to get into that sort of awkward range where you don't have a proper method for actually uploading that and downloading it. A lot of the uh, drive storage and online storage have a maximum file size per individual file of, I believe, two gig. Some, uh, I believe OneDrive is up that to four gig. But when you're sending video clips, it's pretty easy to hit that mark and go above and beyond that. And you can't exactly zip up an entire folder. So one of the things you can do is if you go into Premiere and you go down to Project Management and you click on that, there's a section there that allows you to calculate and consolidate your files. So the first thing you do is click on that and create a new folder that basically takes all the assets that you're using in a project and narrows them down to only what's in the timeline. So that reduces the project size to begin with, but then you're still dealing with 50 gig or so because the file I'm sending is 50 gig. So with it's still raw footage. Yeah, it's still raw footage and it's still the entire timeline and everything else. So to send this to Devin, uh, and this is probably going to take like 14 hours for him to download. <laughs> I uh, set up BitTorrent Sync with a link. So you install it on your computer, you select the folder that you want to share, and then it gives you a link and you can control how many times people can download from that link, how long it'll last, uh, what amount of data they can get at a time, and how you know how much bandwidth it's going to take up on your system. And then you send them the link. They have BitTorrent Sync on their side. They click on it. The folder shows up inside of BitTorrent Sync, and it starts downloading. And it continues to download until the entire project has been sent over to Devin. So that means that I can work with him remotely as long as it doesn't matter if there's a, a day or two behind uh, transmitting files back and forth. He can have an entire backup of a rather large project and get going on that without having to worry about me mailing some hard drive to him or you know using right. some sort of file slicing program that slices it up into zip files that are you know 20 or 30 files long or using RAR to break it down into tiny little sections and then upload it to to drive and then hopefully nothing gets corrupted and you have to send it over <laughs> again. So this is kind of weird if because I, when you yes, hear a bitch bitor and think you think of BitTorrent as like, oh, I'm going to go steal something. But this is not stealing. This is just using the same peer-to-peer connection that you get with a regular torrent. Only now I'm an individual and I'm sending a file that is – or multiple files in a folder that's already organized to somebody else. Yeah. And it's so handy for video production. I absolutely love it. I, I will say a caveat though is that uh, it's not – this isn't a way to deliver files to a client. No. It's not user-friendly. Uh, by all means, especially if you're working professionally, please stop trying to use Dropbox free uh, and like pay the five bucks a month or whatever it takes to buy a Dropbox membership because you deliver some kind of two gig file as a final edit to the client and then he sends it to his friend and now you've had three people download it and then Dropbox shuts it down and says, we're sorry, you're out of your data quota. And then the client's going, hey, I can't download your file anymore. What happened? It's like just <laughs> buy, buy whether it's Google Drive, Dropbox, I don't care. I like Dropbox personally, but whatever it is, spend the five bucks a month just so you can get those deliverables and not worry about it. But BitTorrent Sync, absolutely love it, especially too for backing up files. It's so important to have offsite backups as well. Uh, in case anything happens to the location you're working at or something like that. And you don't even know, it, it's not even necessarily a fire breaks out. It could just be a virus on the system or ransomware that corrupts all of your files unless you pay them $500. Yeah, There's I'm all really kinds of bad about that. Happen. 
my backup is actually right behind me. I'll move my head out of the way. That is my server up there on top of that shelf. And that is a 24 terabyte server that has everything backed up to it. And then my my computer that's the other backup is upstairs. So like, <laughs> what am I doing? Like I'm backing what up from upstairs to downstairs and like now it's backed up and it's great because you, know, well, you could just use the stairs. Well, this one's <laughs> got, you know, upstairs to downstairs. this one's got raid drives and all that stuff. And the other one's sure, just, you know, yeah. individual hard drives. So I'm backing up in case of hard drive failure, but right. I mean, honestly, you're right. Uh, when you're I've working on a project, on project getting, and especially like this remote stuff, I work with a lot of, of directors and producers and stuff that are in other areas and I drive there to shoot with them. And then I drive back home again. And then they're like, Hey, um, I didn't get a copy of that 32 gig card that was, was, you know, mm. in the camera before you left. And that was the last set of files I needed. So you can just put that in BitTorrent sync in a folder and they can download it and have it. You're right. It's not the most user-friendly. So for clients trying to explain to them, Hey, you need to download this. <laughs> you need to like click on this link. It's going to open up and then it's going to show up in there. That's pretty tough. And you know, as but easy- the best example, the best example of where this software is amazing is when on one project I was working with five different editors. Some of them were motion guys. Some of them were oh, and you uh, sync the folders, so editors. every time they edited it, changed at every folder. Right, right. And now you got to be careful because, of course, if I make a change and then somebody else makes a change to that same file, the syncs will overlap each other and you'll lose data. But in terms of something like I'm working with a motion graphic artist, he's working with After Effects files. I don't care how often he changes those files because I'm just working on my Premiere files. Yep. So in that kind of situation, uh, he can keep updating all day long. And when I and because those files are so small, too, if you're not syncing after you've already synced all the footage, you're just syncing project files when you change them or uploading a few assets. It means one day I'll open up my timeline and see all the changes he made automatically because the files are in sync. So it's not necessarily the perfect system because if people are trying to use the same files, you're going to run into issues. So be careful of that. But outside of that, oh my gosh, it's free. The more people, people that are on it, the faster the network will be. Um, of course, it can kind of slow down your internet too, if you're not careful, but in yeah, this kind of situation, it's like the bandwidth. When, when you compare that to spending something like $35 to overnight a drive from LA to New York, it's like, and then, you know, the money to send it back and all that kind of stuff. This is really the best uh, solution to go for if you're kind of on the cheap and you have time to upload files to each other. Or if you're working at a studio that has a fiber connection, uh, like the one I was at today, oh, I know they use BitTorrent Sync with a lot of their stuff because they've got 200 meg up and 200 meg down. They're basically a server at that point. So. Man, I, I have some friends that live in Kansas City and I just want to punch them every time I talk to them because they're like, hey, <laughs> look at this. Oh, man, I can upload this to G Drive like it was on my computer. It's like, I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> no, uh, the other thing with your project files, and this is something I do besides BitTorrent Sync, is actually I, I pay for uh, Google Drive space. And Google Drive has a really cool feature that allows you to set up a sync folder on your computer. So then if you store your project files in that sync folder, every time you make a change, the sync goes online and it's saved in two places. So that's yeah. the extra method. And then I also, as a, an even more extra method is I email the project file to the guy I'm working with so that he has a copy of it as well. And we both have like cloned folders. So we both have the same file structure and everything. So opening it up is yeah. a big issue. The only thing I will say about G drive though, is watch out because both G drive as well as, um, the, uh, windows storage format, uh, OneDrive, neither OneDrive, one of them yeah. can handle extremely complex file types and I'm, I'm not explaining this exactly right but i know a couple people 
that have lost their Lightroom library because they were backing it up this way. And I've actually accidentally corrupted my Lightroom library a couple times by backing it up to, uh, to Google Drive because it, for whatever reason, is sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it goes into that drive format and whatever compression they're doing on it, because it's considered a complex file, it already has some kind of compression going on. So you're doing compression on top of compression and it does something weird that just corrupts the the wow, file okay. and structure and doesn't allow it to be able to be read. So watch out for that. I know a couple of people Keep that have that lost, warning. yeah, they've lost their um, entire photo collection from iPhoto because they uploaded it to something like that. And because of the way iPhoto stores the information for their photos inside of it, the entire library is basically controlled by that thing. And then they have to go bit and piece all their pictures back together if they don't have that anymore. And it just went to crap as soon as they uploaded it to, to Google drive. So Watch out for that. Yeah. One other thing before we go that I'm kind of excited about, and I'm actually, that's my night fun time, is uh, the <laughs> latest uh, developer version of Windows 10 is out. And yes. that does include Cortana as well as some of the other functionality. So now you can talk to your computer. I was running the previous... And it'll talk back this time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It won't just be like... Nur. But uh, <laughs> the next version uh, is available now. You can get it as an ISO, and they also have a nice utility that uh, uh, poops it right out onto a thumb drive, so you can plug that into your computer and install from there. It's really simple. Don't install it on your production machine unless you're ready to dink around with some weird stuff like DirectX 12 and, and some of that other stuff. But it's really cool to play with, and if you get familiar with it now... When it finally goes to production and the free downloads for everybody that are coming for Windows 7 and Windows 8 yeah. owners, then you'll be free ready free. and you'll get an idea of exactly what it's like. So if you have a crappy old machine laying around or something like that, it does a great job and I've been really happy with it. I'm excited to install the next version of Windows 10. I use it on my MacBook Air. I think it's uh, it's fantastic the way that they've changed it so it reacts dynamically to how you have it set up. I think that it takes care of just about all the complaints people were really having with Windows 8 because let's face it, as much as people complain about the interface, uh, the core of Windows 8, the speed of Windows 8 and everything else has really been good enough that I go, you know what, I'll deal with the problems with the user interface because the core of the system is really stable and it's really good. So if 10 is just them kind of optimizing a little bit more and fixing those user experience problems, that's a win in my book. Now, Devin, we're finishing up the podcast. Where can people find you? People can find me at impulsenetworks.tv. I've got uh, a few videos coming out this week about shooting with the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera. Uh, so if you're interested in that kind of stuff this week, I'm probably going to have a few tutorials and a few behind the scenes about how I've been editing that kind of footage. That sounds pretty sexy. Guys, you can find this podcast on iTunes over at dslrfilmnoob.com under the podcast tab. You can also find it on SoundCloud. All of those are searchable by dslrfilmnoob.com. Dot com. So swing by any of those locations to get the audio version of this or watch it on YouTube if you like. Thanks, Devin, for joining me, and we'll see you next time on the DSLR Film Noob Podcast.